Welcome to Let Us Reason, a Christian-Muslim dialogue with host Al Fadi. Let Us Reason is a unique show utilizing theology, apologetics, and evangelism to reach Muslims for Christ by comparing and contrasting Christian and Muslim doctrines. And now, your host, Al Fadi. If we are talking for the last couple of episodes about a paradigm that was called Abdul Malik Al-Hajjaj paradigm and their role in creating the Quran or standardizing a, a text per se much later than the time of Uthman, why then was the Abdul Malik Al-Hajjaj narrative lost? Why was it lost? And with me to answer this fundamental question is Dr. J. Smith. Dr. J., why was this paradigm lost given the stature of both Abdul Malik and Al-Hajjaj. Yeah, and this is where I, I, I have to say that I don't agree with Shoemaker. Remember I said at the very beginning, the very first episode, there are some things that Shoemaker says that I think are not correct, uh, just because, first of all, he contradicts himself. We'll be getting to that in future episodes. But in this case, I think he's going off in the wrong direction because he is held, he's really held by his belief that Muhammad is the, in, uh, the, the, the instigator of the Quran. He still believes there is a Muhammad living in Mecca, in the Hijaz, though he's going to dispute that right, left, and center in another few episodes. And because he holds that paradigm, he has to give lip service to this idea of this memory. This, he, ta- he spends five pages talking about this memory, and he talks about this memory, but he's, all his applications and all his examples come from biblical memory. Which is odd that he would use biblical memory in a biblical context and then try to apply and say, well, the same thing is happening over here. And what we're talking about Arabs. memory here for the sake of the uh, audience, we're talking about memorizing things? Yeah, that they remember, they have much yeah. better memory than we use today, that they're much better at that. Today we don't like that because we read everything, we're much more textual oriented. Uh, but back in the first century, in the second century, they could memorize everything in wholesale, and that's why that memory was very exact, and it would continue on, and that's why we can trust it, is what he's saying. Now, in this case, he said the memory got lost. So he, he's kind of talking out of both sides. It's yeah, a great, lost within the span of one century. That's right. That's, this, to me, that doesn't make sense. You don't lose memory of one century, especially when he already admits that there are codices from the time of Uthman. There were multiple codices. He talks about Uba ibn Khan's codex. That's not memory. He talks about Ibn Masud's codex. That's not memory. He talks about Ibn Masud's codex. That's not memory. He talks about Said ibn Thabit's codex. 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 Codex means books. So he's admitting yeah. that there is textual there is textual material there. He's going to go into a whole litany of references of all of these borrowed texts. Mm-hmm. The, and these are Jewish and primarily Syriac Christian texts that make their way into the Quran. So he's aware of that. So these are all written material. This is not memory anymore. Yet he spends five pages trying to say this memory got lost between Abdul Malik and the time the traditions were written down. So you're talking about a century and a half, maybe two centuries, because we're talking about Al-Buhari Sahih Muslim Ibn Dawud, and that's, uh, uh, that's 840, I'm sorry, 870. So at least a, a century and a half, that memory got lost. To me, that's a contradiction right there. I want to just add one more thing about this. It seemed like if I want to take uh, Shoemaker's argument about memory getting lost within one century, then Shoemaker just shut down Ibn Mujahid's whole canonization of the readings because it was based on memory. And what he's saying is... By then, the readings of Quran was different. Yeah, well, we'll get to that, and that's a, that even takes that one problem even further. But let's get back to what he is saying. So he's he's trying to understand how memory of the past can be changed to the present in just a, within a century. 
and he, he admits that there was a Uthmanic Codex, so there's the written text, may have been used, he even says, along with others by Al-Hajjaj in composing new So he is admitting at the same point that there is a text that Al-Hajjaj is using. To me, that's contradictory. Why spend all this time on memory then? I would suggest a better solution. And you know where I'm going to go with this. I've said this before. And it's very clear that the Abbasids hated the Umayyads. Why talk about memory when you had a political problem here? You had a political difficulty. The Abbasids in Baghdad hated the Umayyads who were in Damascus. They've always hated them. They went to war and they finally now conquered them in 749, mid-8th century. And I would agree with yours because the political uh, uh, disagreements usually is much stronger argument. And here you have al-Buhari. He is given... 600,000 of these Akbars, Umayyad Akbars. And what does he do? He is supposed to decide which are authentic, which are not. Well, he pretty much throws all of them out and whittles them down from 600,000 just down to 7,397. That's just 2%. 98% he throws out. That's right. There's the problem. They just didn't want anything to Umayyad. They try to destroy it physically by burning them or destroying them by other means. Whatever way they destroy them, they destroy them so we don't have them today. That's what's going on. This has nothing to do with memory. This is wholesale censorship, right? standardization of a text. So it would, it would, it would be in the Abbasid's own interest to propose a much earlier Quran from the time of Uthman himself than to suggest that their holy book had been created by the hated Umayyads. That's what they're doing. They don't want Al-Hajjad. They hate Al-Hajjad. Now, they have to admit that Al-Hajjad did 11 changes, and that's all you're going to get out of the Abbasids. They don't want any notion that this book that is now their holy book had anything to do with Abdul Malik or with Al-Hajjad. What's more, look at what Alfred Louis de Premier says, and Shoemaker quotes him. He's this Frenchman, and he says, listen, it didn't just end with the Abbasids. It continues on into the 10th century. What does he say? Well, he believes that the Quran was not canonized at all by Al-Hajjaj or Abdul Malik. He says this, one should add to these considerations the fact that despite the apparent efforts by Al-Hajjaj and Abdul Malik, it would still be some time before an inviolable or inviolable text of the Quran would be universally established within the Islamic world. We hear that furtive copies of some of the companion codices managed to survive Al-Hajjaj's Persia, even into the 10th century in some instances. Folks, don't just think that the Abbasids created the Quran and then put it back to Uthman, saying that they had finished the story. It continues to be added to even, in this case, up past the 10th century. Right. That's a very powerful argument. In other words, I mean, is it is it fair to say this? Uh, and, and Jay, you can answer this. I mean, the way you feel about it. Is it fair to say that um, Uthman really was the progenitor of the process? Al-Hajjaj and Abdul Malik solidified and selected whatever they liked and the Abbasides finalized? I'm going to disagree with you on that. There I'm just asking. No I'm just asking. Uthman. There is no Abu Bakr Umar in I disagree with you. There, there is an Uthman, but there was oh. a process that was fluid. Can you show me his name? Well, you know. Can you show me from Medina? Anyway, he anyway we, we'll, we'll argue that later. That's coming. That's coming. And he's yeah. going to show you. He's going to prove you wrong. Okay. Shoemaker's going to prove you wrong. You've not read this part of the book. But if he, he talks about Muhammad, he cannot disprove uh, other parts. Is also. there a Muhammad in Mecca? What I'm saying, if he agrees. He can't even find it. Well, that's fine. That's fine. But we can always argue that there is lost material, or at least maybe there was stuff on memory that later was added no, in writing. It's not even that. Well, the Abbasides <laughs> somehow 
Wait till you find out what exactly where it all comes from. It's okay. That's your stance. My stance is different. Oh boy, I'm right. going to have a good debate. So what on this are we going to talk about next? All right, we're going to we're not going to debate it right now. We're going to move on. And what I want to do is I just want to look at Hoyland and his masterpiece. Uh, it, uh, the, oh, the, Robert Hoyland, yeah, absolutely. Robert Hoyland. We do yeah. need to talk about his masterpiece uh, that, that that he wrote. Seeing in Islam as other side. Islam as other side. Yeah, yeah, I want to just pull out a few things before we move on because we do need to get. Uh, okay. Obviously, we need to get to the Chronic Manuscripts. Very but before we get to the Chronic Manuscripts, we do need to give lip service to Hoyland. He's done such a great job, Dr. Robert Hoyland. Uh, so that's going to be next. Absolutely. And his uh, you know, collection of testimonies uh, was absolutely powerful when I first was exposed to it. I can see why it is important for us to talk about it. Until next time, folks, uh, have a blessed day. Thank you for listening. We'll be right back after this message. You're listening to Let Us Reason with Al Fadi. We depend on the generous gifts of our supporters to produce this program. To join us in this work, go to patreon.com and search for CIRA International. That's C-I-R-A International. You can also donate through PayPal. Go to CIRAInternational.com to learn more. Your support will help us continue introducing Muslims to the gospel of Christ. Now, back to Let Us Reason. Dr. J, welcome back. Yeah, uh, and it's, we do need to give lip service to Robert Hoyland. We need to thank him for all the great work he has done. He has been quoted right, left, and center for obvious reasons because he does what, what the Muslims should have done. And that is, you need to, if, since you don't have anything, you admit you don't have anything for the first two centuries. Uh, for, for 200 years, you have nothing. If you have nothing, then why don't you go and find out what is there? And there's a reason why you have nothing, because the Abbasids have destroyed it all. So why don't you go to those things that the Abbasids didn't have control over? Why don't you go to those who were there in situ, who are actually being impacted by these Muslims, like John of Damascus, like Al-Kindi, like Abraham from Tiberias? These are the guys who are living in the, underneath the authority of these Arabs who call themselves Ishmaelites, who later called themselves Muslims. They were being impacted, and then they were writing, and those their writings don't get destroyed. They're still wholesale. They're still with us today. Why don't you see what they say? And that's what he did. He just went all over from the 7th century. He wasn't interested in the 9th and 10th century. He had already, like I have and you have, we've already thrown that out. It's too late and too far north. And he said, let's see what they're saying. And there's some little tidbits that I just like to introduce that have come up that actually support what we're talking about. One of the things, and Shoemaker mentions this in his book, and that's why Shoemaker gives him a lot of credit. And, and, and he, he refers to this book. He says, in this more than 870-page volume uh, that was published in 1997, in, in the last century. Mm-hmm. So it's not new. It's been around for over 20 years. Hoyland catalogs over 130 non-Islamic sources that make reference to the religious movement founded. Now, here's where Schumacher should have, have founded by Muhammad. No, nowhere is our, do any of these uh, references say Muhammad. That is true. I mean, I looked at him. I, I'm surprised that he would say that. It did talk about a religious person or a leader, but it not did not give a name. And one of my criticisms is what Hoyland does do. He calls them Muslims and he calls Muhammad Muhammad. No, there's no reference in any of these to a man named Muhammad. Now, there, you are going to see that uh, he and Peter, uh, I forget the name of, there's there's one reference, uh, not Sabaeus, uh, it's the Presbyter, Thomas the Presbyter, does use the word Muhammad, but it's written in the ninth century. 
the nerd that is obvious in the ninth century. That yeah, yeah, we're talking about it early. I mean, later we know why it was used because it's been developed already. Exactly, and that's why Al Kindi yeah. uses Muhammad yeah. because he's yeah. there when Muhammad was well known. He's using the word Muslim because they were Muslims at that time. But anybody writing in the seventh century from documents in the seventh century don't use the word Muhammad and they don't use the word Muslim. So Hoyland needs to be careful because he's not quoting it correctly when he's referring to it. Even Shoemaker makes this mistake, though that name is not used. Is what I say. At various stages in its early history, around. 60 of these witnesses were written during the first Islamic century. That means from 622 to 719. Now, up to 719, according to Hoyland, there is no reference to the Quran. Let's see the quote. None of these first century witnesses so much as mentions any sort of sacred writing used in any capacity at all by Muhammad's followers. This has nothing short of incredible. And this is a shoemaker saying this. This is nothing short of incredible if as many would suppose that the Quran was already collected by 650. Everybody would have known about it. Yeah. Especially if it had been standardized in a canonical form and was believed by Muhammad's followers to be direct revelation from their God. This is solid evidence that is, that is deeply problematic for accepting the canonical narrative of a Sunni Noldekian Shwalian paradigm evidence that has accordingly been widely ignored by Western scholars. Right, and, and this proves, obviously, there was no such thing as a known book. That means it was in the process of being developed. That's right. And then he goes to Hoyland to say, well, what does Hoyland say is the first reference to this Uthmanic recension? And the first reference, the earliest source for the Uthmanic collection, is not till Al-Juri talks about it. Look at the date, 742. That's the mid-age century. That's a hundred years after the alleged uh, reign of Uthman. Exactly. It is exactly a hundred years after the reign of Uthman. Well, well, Uthman starts in 644, so just two years earlier, shy of that. But can you see, this is enormous. Why has no one brought this up? And then here it says, here's, he goes back and and, and this, he then quotes Nikolai Sinai. Yet both the letter of Leo III and John of Damascus are just as old, if not older, as the alternative account of the Quran's origin and related by Saif ibn Mumar, neither of which describe any Uthmanic codex. So these are things we need to look at. These are things we need to hear. And I'm thankful that Shoemaker is bringing these up and saying these are important because these are nuggets that give us a timeline. He continues on and he talks about the 7th century Jew or Christian knew nothing about this Quran, this book. And this is what Shoemaker says. It is worth emphasizing that according to, in the strongest terms, that according to Hoyland, that prior to John of Damascus and the letter of Leo III, those are both 8th century, which appeared in the, to be roughly contemporary works from the, the, the well, 8th century, no writer, Christian or otherwise, shows any awareness at all that Muhammad's followers had his sacred book of their own. In fact, they don't even show that, that there's Muhammad's followers or Muhammad. This long silence should certainly give us pause. And it raises significant questions about the history and status of the Quran during the first Islamic century. The Jews and Christians of late antiquity were peoples for whom the authority, the sacred book was paramount. Surely they would have been curious and inquisitive to learn whether these newly arrived Abrahamic monotheists had a scripture of their own. And yet they show complete ignorance of any distinctive corpus of scripture claimed by Muhammad's followers until the early 8th century. And this is powerful, by the way. Huge, huge. 
If this is the greatest book in the history of mankind, if this is the book that's, that, that corrects this book and it supersedes this book, then why did nobody know about it? And if this is the greatest man ever sent by God to transform the universe, why wouldn't anybody make reference to him? Yeah, yeah. Hoyland continues on and talks about the fact that these early Christian writers dispute the standard Islamic narrative. Leo III, John of Damascus, Abraham, and Al-Kindi, all these sources, all of which are either contemporary or before Al-Buhadi's sources, where we get about the Quran. Remember, it's Al-Buhadi, volume 6, hadith number 509. 204 years later. uh, Where where we get all this material in 100 years later, or in this case, 40 years later. It is clear that the Uthmanic tradition for the creation of the Quran is much later and based only on Isnats. Isnats are a list of names of which nothing is written. It's all oral tradition, Mm -hmm. which are nothing more than, uh, he just goes on and says, nothing more than a list of names, while these four sources are written sources predating those of al-Buhari. Fascinating. And this is why we need to have Robert Hoyland. Robert Hoyland doesn't really come to any conclusions on it. He just puts out the material there for us to deal with it. Like Shoemaker any scholar should do. And he's right? saying, we've got to deal with it. We've got to come to conclusions. And that's what we're doing as well. Exactly. I mean, Robert Hoyland is saying, here's my evidence. Tell me what you make out of it. Well, we're telling him what we make out of it. And, you know, you have to understand also uh, his position where he's at. He has to be careful as well. So I think Robert Hoyland did an excellent job for all of us just by presenting this evidence. Yeah. Good stuff. Excellent. So what are we going to talk about next time? We're then now finally going to get into the chronic manuscripts. Wonderful. And I can't wait, of course, because it's a fascinating topic. Until next time, have a blessed day. Thank you for listening. We'll be right back after this message. You're listening to Let Us Reason with Al Fadi. We depend on the generous gifts of our supporters to produce this program. To join us in this work, go to patreon.com and search for CIRA International. That's C-I-R-A International. You can also donate through PayPal. Go to sirainternational.com to learn more. Your support will help us continue introducing Muslims to the gospel of Christ. Now, back to Let Us Reason. Since we are talking about this book, Creating the Quran, by Stephen Shoemaker, and since he alludes to some uh, of the Quranic manuscripts, we thought it will be appropriate uh, for our audience to cover uh, these early manuscripts one show at a time to give you uh, more in-depth backgrounds about them. And uh, to do that, I'm going to turn now the, our attention to Dr. J. Dr. J, welcome back. Yeah, and it's good to be back, and it's good to finally get to the manuscripts, because really, if you want, the probably the strongest argument for later for a later Quran is with the manuscripts, because uh, the manuscripts just don't exist prior to Abdul Malik and Al-Hajjaj. Case in point. That's the first thing you need to say. And Shoemaker agrees with that, and Shoemaker does say that. Um, he talks about, and this, let me just quote what he says. He says, there is not a single Quranic manuscript, Yemeni or otherwise, that has been dated to the 7th century on anything other than paleographical grounds, which, given the paltry evidence that survives, remain controversial in the extreme. One scholar's 7th century leaf, another may assign to the 8th or 9th century. And even if this manuscript truly is from the end of the 7th century, its witness remains a far cry from establishing the traditional account of Quranic origins or, for that matter, its collection in editing. So he's very clear that even those that possibly can be attributed to the 7th century, like with radiocarbon dating, he's going to shut down radiocarbon dating. We're going to get to that. Wait to see what he has to say about that. He's gonna, and he he's probably done the best job I've ever seen of working with the radiocarbon dating and seeing what the scholars are really saying about that dating. But that's for later. We're gonna get to that in the future episodes. 
Dorosh, François Dorosh is the man who you need to go to for manuscript evidence. He is the world authority on the manuscript evidence. He is the one that has cataloged the dates for the different manuscripts, and everybody goes to him, just because he's way ahead of the game and because of the fact that he is. this has been his forte. He's from France. Uh, he's there in Paris. Uh, he is at the Bibliothèque Nationale de Paris there in, in Paris. And so he was the one that uh, really controls uh, this uh, manuscript that I have here. I'm going to put it to when I get to it, and that's the Petropolitanus, Petropolitanus, which is yeah, the, the BNF. BNF. Yeah, uh-huh. So he says this, when looking at the transcription of the Codex Pet, uh, Parisino, uh, Petropolitanus, this one here, we're going to get to it, one sees that this copy, as well as those which belong to these chronological strata of the transmission, are unable to prevent what the Uthmanic condition was supposed to achieve. That is, no variation in the chronic text. There's all kinds of variations, and that's why he's saying this is not going to support what uh, the Muslims have been saying, and certainly is not going to support uh, what those from the Noldekishwali camp have been saying, that Uthman codified it, and there's not been any change since that period from the 652. No, the, the manuscripts are going to shut that down real quick. That's why we need to get to the manuscripts. So what manuscripts are we talking about? Let's go to the slides, and let's start with the first one, uh, the first two that you see here. So on, on, on the left here, you see the Topkapi. The Topkapi is the probably the most famous. That's it. This is it right here. So I've got it right here. This is the Topkapi, folks. Right. You're looking at it, okay? Yeah. You can't get this anymore. This costs an awful lot of money. It cost me over 400 pounds when I bought it. It's now out of print. This has cost thousands And, of and basically what people see is a facsimile copy of the actual manuscript, and it's transcribed down at the bottom. And why is it transcribed at the bottom? Well, because you cannot read it, really, if, right. un- unless you know how to read uh, manuscripts. There are no dots. There are no yeah. bells. Uh, now, I lie. There are a few dots. And you'll see there's a dot here, there's a dot here, there's a few dots uh, in, in each page. But we, they're in a different color, which suggests they were put in at a later date. And, and many scholars will tell you this. Uh, yes, that sometimes they will come back and add it just to help with the reading. You'll see medallion. There's a medallion here. And you can see sometimes medallions are squished in at a later date. They don't. There's no any room for them. Those are versification. So they've tried to versify this one. But you can see over it, sometimes it's even hard to read because there's been, they've not really kept care of this. This is the one that's in the top copy, in the top copy. We'll get to that. We'll come to that in time. So that is the Al-Musaf Al-Sharif, known uh, as the top copy. The other one over here is the Samarkand. We're going to get into this. We're going to unpack it. We're going to show you some of the problems with it. And we're going to actually quote from uh, Al-Takulich and Ekman and Salah, the two scholars who have worked at all of these six manuscripts. These are the six major ones. So those are the first two. Uh, we, we have also the Ma'il. This is the one that I know the best because it's right there in London. You can go down to the, the Red Black Gallery there in the British Library and you can actually see this. Usually it's it's there for you to see, but obviously sometimes it's on it's it's so famous that it's been sent all over the world. And we're gonna unpack that, look at it. That's there in London, England. And this is the one that Daroche controls. He doesn't own it, obviously, but he is the one that has done the most work on it, known as the Petropolitanus there in the Bibliothèque Nationale in Paris in France. So that's number three and four. Number five and number six would be the Al Husseini manuscript, which is in Cairo. You can see it's a monumental text. It is enormous. Uh, and the bigger that, it is, the later it is. That's usually the case because yes. these are t- these are modeled after the Christian manuscripts, which were became monumental in the same way. Mm-hmm. And then the most famous, probably the best one, the most exciting is the Sana'a manuscript in Sana'a in Yemen. We're going to be looking at every one of these, so I don't want to really pe- uh, 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 take on it. But let's see what the scholars say. So when we go to when we go to these two men, this is the first one here. His name is Dr. Ekmeleddin Isanulu. 
He's there in Turkey. He's founding director, general of Irasissa from 1980 to 2004, secretary general of the organization of the Islamic Conference of Research Center. He's more of a political figure, more than a scholar. The scholar is this man here. His name is Dr. Tayyar Altukulic. Uh, he is the one that actually did the work. This is his book uh, from 2002 to 2007. He spent five years along with Isan Alu, and they looked at these six manuscripts. They were the first to do so face-to-face, hands-on. They were the ones that had the access to them. He's a leading scholar in the Quranic studies, ex-president of the Turkish Religious Affairs, deputy in the Turkish parliament. These guys are in politics and in theology. Now, this is what he says. He says, according to Ihsan Alu, we have none of Uthman's Musafs. That's the first thing you need to know. Meaning those are not the copies of Uthman. None of these six are from Uthman. Nor do we have any copies from those Musafs. So not, these are not even copies of copies. These Musafs date from the later Umayyad. Later Umayyad period. That means the 8th century. Because the Umayyad period goes from uh, 661 to 749. And that's the time of Abdul Malik at least. Abdul Malik and Ahad Judge. You're right. going to see all of these date from that after except for one. Which and makes sense. If it started that time, we're finding manuscripts from that time. That's why. Dr. Altekulic says, no serious scholarly work has been done on them until we did. We're the first ones to do any serious scholarly work on it. These Musafs date from the early to mid-8th century, he says. They are not Uthmanic, nor copies said by him. We're going to start with, with the top copy, and that's the one we're going to go with next. So let's uh, run, close this one out, and then we're going to start and go back to the top copy, which is coming up. And, and that's basically what we're going to do, as I promised. This is an overview, and we're going to take them one manuscript at a time. And that's extremely important, by the way, because these manuscripts have a lot of answers concerning what we call Abdul Malik al-Hajjaj paradigm or the later development of the Quran. Thank you, Dr. J. Thank you, everyone. This is Al-Fadi. God bless. <laughs>